Turn with me in your Bibles. Well, we'll pray first. I'll get, I'll get there eventually. We'll ask the Lord for a blessing on our study of God's Word and a prayer of illumination. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you as we're about to open your Word. We want to open that Word and to be moved by the things that we hear. We want to be encouraged and we want to be directed. We want to be given insight into how we're supposed to live as Christians within your world. And to do that, we need your grace. So, Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, keep us from straying thoughts and sleepiness from the temptations of this world, and cause us to know the truth of your grace. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So then now turn with me in your Bibles to Titus. Titus is a letter from Paul, one of the pastoral letters. It is before Hebrews. It is after the two Timothys. It is page 1184 in our Pew Bibles. We're going to read chapter 1, and then we're going to confess, or we're going to read what we confess in Article 30 of the Belgian Confession regarding the government of the church. The government of the church. So Titus chapter 1, we'll begin at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he might be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, And the commands of people who turn away from the truth, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. As for the reading of God's holy word, then to either our forms and prayers books, page... Uh, 187, 188, oh no, just 187, and or our Trinity Psalter hymnals, 866, 867. Page 187 in our Trinity, or in our Forms and Prayers books, page 866 in our Trinities. 
It's Article 30 on the government of the church. Hear this. We believe that this true church ought to be governed according to the spiritual order that our Lord has taught us in His Word. There should be ministers or pastors to preach the Word of God and administer the sacraments. There should also be elders and deacons, along with the pastors, to make up the council of the church. By this means, true religion is preserved, true doctrine is able to take its course, and evil men are corrected spiritually and held in check, so that also the poor and all the afflicted may be helped and comforted according to their need. By this means, everything will be done well and in good order in the church. When such men are elected who are faithful and are chosen according to the rule that Paul gave to Timothy. And that's a reference as well, or that can be a reference as well to Titus, Titus 1. It's the same rule. Brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is for us, of course, a very familiar thing to read about the government of the church in this way, to hear that there are pastors, there are elders and deacons, that they are elected. It's a simple thing. We are familiar with this process. It plays out for us every year. In fact, in the ver- early in the new year, the council already begins to think about those who are going to be nominated for uh, election to the offices and Uh, And then we have, of course, our spring congregational meeting where those votes are taken and made. And then on Father's Day, as a rule, we install those new men to the offices that they've been appointed to. It's all very familiar and very ordinary. And it's for that reason that we ought to also give some thought to why it is that we do these things, not simply to accept that this is what we do, it's just what we do. Indeed, it is what we do, and other churches in other circumstances and communities do different things, but we need to think about why, in the light of God's Word, we do things in this way. And the answer must ultimately be rooted not in our own desires or our own uh, uh, plans and purposes, but in the Word of God. That is, that Even in these matters of organization, of how it is that we can organize the church of Jesus Christ in a way that is pleasing to Him and that is consistent with His will, that we must do this according to His Word, that His Word must guide us on these questions. Because ultimately, it is Jesus Christ who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And it is Jesus Christ as King within the church of Jesus Christ It is Jesus Christ as King that we are to honor also in the matter of the government of the church. And that's how we want to study Article 30 uh, this afternoon. We want to approach the question of the church's organization, the church's government, from the perspective of Jesus Christ. What does the King ask of us? What is the King who rules us by His will? What does He provide for us? After all, we do need to have something. We need some kind of organization. We need some kind of government 
within any local congregation. Remember, in our study of the Belgian Confession, we're narrowing our focus on the church. We started with the Holy Catholic Church, the church, that one body of believers where everyone is seeking their faith in Jesus Christ or salvation in Jesus Christ and is being reformed, being ministered to by the Holy Spirit. And we know that that ministry happens within the context of a local congregation, within a gathering of God's people in a particular place. And we know that that particular congregation now is to be governed in a particular way. We're narrowing our focus on the ministry and the life of the church. And every organization, as we well know, every business, every uh, uh, nation, every book club needs some kind of structure to it, needs some kind of organization to it so that it functions in a particular way. Every group needs to gather itself, put itself together according to a particular standard. What is that? What should that standard be? We know that there are churches that are governed. Uh, uh, you take the Catholic Church, against which, of course, uh, uh, Guido de Bray was writing. Uh, it's in a very hierarchical way. The Pope's at the very top, and then bishops and cardinals and priests and all the rest underneath him. Or you think of others who would argue that the church should be far more uh, uh, broadly governed by the people in a more democratic way, in a, in a way that everyone votes on every decision or every significant decision. Uh, those are, the, you might say, the two extremes uh, for governing the church. What is the, the answer we give? What is the answer we believe the Word gives? Again, we must remind ourselves and uh, recognize that since the church of Jesus Christ is founded upon the work that He accomplished on the cross, since it is a product of His redeeming power, since He is the, the founder and protector of the faith, then He is the one who also gets to decide how it is that the church should be governed. That's really where we need to start. Before we discuss ministers, elders, and deacons, we must acknowledge, we must be convicted that the Word of God places the authority for choosing the order, the government of the church, places the authority for that upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. That is something that we do struggle with, after all. We need to be convicted of that, again, because it's something we struggle with. We all have an instinctive, natural resistance to God's claim and sovereign power over us in all of life. That's been the case since the fall into sin. God said, don't eat of that tree. And we said, well, we'll do what we want. And we've been saying that ever since. And, And so you know that when you interact with unbelief, when you interact with your fellow man, and you say, you know, you really, God deserves your praise. You must come to church on Sunday, they would say to you, who are you to tell me what to do? And I don't believe in God and I don't have to do any of that anyway. There is that instinctive, natural resistance to the claim of God upon life. And our human nature, even as redeemed Christians, our old nature is no different than that. Our our old nature does the same thing. It hears that Jesus is king. It hears that he gets to make decisions. And it makes us want to say, no, no, that's not the way it should be. And, and our culture encourages that also with respect to the government of the church. For our culture suggests, argues, believes that democracy, this system of government where people get to choose, that is 
the, the standard for, for any kind of grouping or organization. That democracy is the greatest good. We'll even export it at the end of a gun. Democracy is the way to be governed by everyone, for anyone and for everybody. Then you have at least personal choice. Then you have control over your own destiny. Then you can decide how things are going to go. That is, of course, the promise, isn't it, of democracy? That's what we're told. That democracy gives us control of our future. Which is not, of course, true. Do any of us believe that our voting in elections and any of our provincial or federal elections ultimately results in our choice of government? That by exercising our personal choice in elections, we get what we wanted? Does any of us believe that? Of course not. We understand that the decision of where our governments are going to be founded from is made in Toronto. It's made in Quebec. In those places, the decision is founded. We go through the, uh, the ritual of, of voting because we believe we ought to, because we believe we have a civic duty to. But is democracy really the solution we think it is? It has been described by one political science as the best of the worst possible options, which isn't a very nice way to describe a political system. Democracy, in the end, is not really a way to run a church. Not that there is no democratic involvement, to be sure. Personal responsibility in the church of Jesus Christ is not entirely thrown out. You'll think about how when the people of God in the Old Testament wanted to choose for themselves a king, God said, okay, I will let you make your choice. I will let you get the man that you want. Now it is true that God chose Saul for them, but he chose the one they wanted, the tall, wealthy, attractive one, the one that would inspire them. That's what you want, then that's what you get. And things didn't go well. And there is, in the New Testament, an exercise of democratic significance that is worth reflecting on in the choosing of Matthias to replace Judas, the fallen disciple. You'll remember in Acts chapter 1 that they had to decide who would fill that position. And they did it, it says, by casting lots, which sometimes people argue is some kind of pulling out of straws or putting names in a hat and drawing them out but is probably far more likely just an act of voting. That is, that they would put in a vote. They would indicate who they thought should be the one to take his place. Now notice that even in that democratic exercise of the church, they were limited to two choices, and those two choices were defined by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ had chosen disciples to hear him, to see him, and to know that he had been resurrected from the dead. So those who would replace Judas had to have heard him, had to have listened to his word, had to have seen him resurrected from the dead so that they could be witnesses to the world. It wasn't just anyone that was chosen. It was a limited number that the congregation at that time received. But you see, therein lies the point, doesn't it? That even in the democratic exercise of the church, the membership is called not to decide what they want, but rather to respond, to recognize, or to receive those whom Christ has appointed for these tasks. In the case of Matthias, 
the responsibility of the congregation at that point was to say, this is the one whom we believe Christ has chosen for this position. They didn't say, Jesus, here's the guy you should pick for this position. They didn't direct Jesus. They didn't determine who should sit in that spot. They didn't even define the qualities required for that office. They responded. They recognized. They received. And that's important. That's increasingly important in our culture and in our day that we recognize the centrality of Christ's kingship also in the government of our offices because Jesus does place limits on who may lead. We've just read them from Titus chapter 1. Just think about some of those requirements. Just think about the, the, the second one. It says if anyone is above reproach, that would be the first one, although that would be really an overarching requirement. But the second one is that he be the husband of one wife. Now in those days, of course, in the Roman culture, people would have multiple wives. And, and in their darkness, in their sin, they would come to have multiple wives and then being converted, recognize that there was a problem there and would have to address it. Well, says Paul, if that's you, you may not be an elder. And you may not be a deacon. If you're in that position, you are excluded from these offices. So that the Word of God does limit who may serve. Maybe that's not an option or maybe that's not a matter that concerns us too much. There isn't too much polygamy within our community that is an issue for us. But isn't the issue of women in office one that is of concern? There too, we believe the Lord has placed a limit. He has said, not these, but those. Not people who have many wives, only have one wife. Not those who are female, only male. And our society increasingly says to us, wait a second, what? You don't let women in positions of authority? What kind of a church are you? What kind of a message are you trying to sell? We're never going to listen to you. And if you think that the pressure of our culture won't push us to make decisions that are a little more appealing to our culture, if you don't think that we're going to ever suffer from those challenges, then take a trip to the Netherlands and go see the churches over there, faithful, faithful churches for many years and many decades who have given in on this very question and who argued the reason we have to give in is because if we don't, our witness as a church to the community becomes nothing. No one will come to church. No one will join us in worship. No one will listen to the message of salvation unless we have women in office. Unless we satisfy the culture, we will not be able to minister the Word of God. Who is in control then of those churches? It is clearly the culture. It is clearly those who believe that that women in office is a reasonable position to take. As churches, before we even get to those moments, we need to be reminded and convinced again that the choice of leadership within the church is not made by us, but by Jesus Christ. That He's the King. That He's the one that decides. We may want to decide. You think about some of the ways in which churches, modern churches, uh, organize themselves in a more corporate model with boards, with ministry teams, with very professionalized uh, 
job postings. Sometimes I even get these job postings and it says we're looking for a senior pastor and that senior pastor should be able to inspire everyone and and to be able to bring others to see the glory of God and to be able to lead a a ministry team. It it sounds like a, a position for a CEO or a COO or some corporate position. And that's the way the church functions. That's the way the church in the modern culture functions. That's the way things are done. That's the most efficient way. That's the most excellent way. And it it is appealing. It really is. We shouldn't deny the appeal to it. We ourselves struggle with the decision of Christ to use from amongst our own midst men whom we know, whom we've grown up with, whose faults and failings we are very keen and aware of. We grew up with them. We know what they were like when they were in high school, when they were less pious. It's hard to receive a rebuke from an elder who has a checkered past. It is hard for us to accept Jesus Christ's command that men like those articulated or described in Titus or in 1 Timothy 3 should be leaders among us. It's hard for us to accept that. We should acknowledge the struggle. But we should instead push against it and embrace submission to Christ, the King of Kings. Which isn't to suggest in any way that leaders in the church are not to be held accountable or that church members are simply to do what they're told. It's instead to to acknowledge that as a church, if we would be blessed, if we as a church would be shepherded by the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, then we must listen to His voice. We must follow in His way. We must serve within His church. Submitting to the yoke of Jesus Christ in the realm of church leadership may be difficult for us, but it is necessary to express our trust in the One whose body and blood purchased us for His care. And it's necessary that even in this we admit that we trust ourselves too much. That we think we are wiser than Christ. And that our choices will lead us into green pastures. Better pastures than Christ's choices. We must resist this sinful impulse and embrace what Christ has given. This is a word, of course, to all of us. But it's also a word especially to office bearers. Because since Christ is King of all God's people, and since Christ commands that His entire congregation submit the knee, bend the knee in submission to Him, then we as leaders must be the first to do that. We must be the ones who lead by examples. That's why we're called ministers. Office bearers are ministers. Which is a word from the Latin that means inferior or servant. Ministers serve the magistrate. The great magistrate is Jesus Christ. So that even as office bearers are called to lead, Rather than puffing out their chests and patting themselves on the back, 
They must see themselves as servants, not of the congregation, but of Jesus Christ. Even as this is how we as members ought to view them, ought to see them. Even if the office bearer sometimes forgets his role and thinks of himself too highly, we should encourage them to serve Christ to do what Christ commands them to do. The temptation will be that they do what we command them to do. But when we do that, we not only make our lives more difficult, we exalt ourselves to the position of king which we don't enjoy. When instead we say to our leaders, we want to hear about Christ. We want you to minister the Word in our lives. We want to be challenged to be greater servants of Jesus Christ. When we demand of the office bearers what Christ has commanded them to do, then we show by our submissiveness a commitment to Jesus Christ. We know that they are not like the world, that we are not like the world, that we've been redeemed from worldly ways and are to trust our Savior's will and word for our lives. And that means accepting that this is the way, that this is the choice of the King for our church. And there is great comfort in that. That also the Belgic Confession teaches. For the benefit of godly servants of the Lord, of those that Christ has appointed for this task, is that the faith is protected, the wicked are restrained, and the needy provided for. Now now we ought to stop for a moment and just appreciate that that's what we're supposed to be doing as church. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot, but that's what leadership in the church is supposed to develop and, and encourage and equip us to do. They are to protect the faith, they are to restrain the wicked, and they are to provide for the needy. The church makes, or ought to make, our expectation for the church a high one and a remarkable one. It ought to make us think of the church as a remarkable or- organization and institution. Now the key, of course is that the church, members and leaders alike, bend the knee in submission to Christ. It's it's not merely having church leaders that ensures this happens. It's having godly church leaders, more about that in a moment, but leaders who direct us to serve, who do it by defending the faith, first of all. Jesus' words to His disciples was to beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Or think of Paul's words to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.15 where he describes the church as a pillar and buttress of the truth. Or 2 Timothy 3.1-9 where Paul calls upon Timothy to remain faithful to the Word. Indeed, consider God's own command in Deuteronomy 7.18 where the king The leader in the church community was first, the very first job he was given when he became king was to sit down in a quiet room at a table and write out a copy of the law for himself. He had to know God's Word so personally and so powerfully that he could defend it. That whenever someone came with a lie, with a dishonesty, with a twist on the truth, he could stand and defend it. The leaders of the church office bears all. Elders, deacons, and ministers are to defend the truth. They are to be able to identify what is true and what is false 
and to distinguish between them for the church. He is, they are to as well restrain the wicked. I think about Matthew 6 verse 19 where the gates of hell are not to prevail against the church. You think of Paul's words in Acts 20 through 29 and 30, the wolves that will come amongst the sheepfold. There are, there are problems, there are troubles. There are sinners that gather even amongst the com- company of God's people, sometimes to create chaos, sometimes to cause problems, and sometimes because they have fallen into, into sinful ways. And they need to be called to repentance and they need to be told about the Word of Christ and His claim upon them as King and their need to to acknowledge and obey Him by faith. Which isn't an act of punishment, by the way. Which isn't the elders punishing members or wicked sinners. It is rather they're correcting them. They're showing them the way. They're discipling them in the way. The word discipline and disciple come from similar words. Not doing so in cruelty, but with loving admonition. Not desiring that they be lost, but that they be found. And that they be restored to Jesus Christ the King. But nonetheless, being clear. Here is where the church is challenged again today. Here is where being offended becomes the, the, the thing that, avoid, that prevents any kind of meaningful ministry from happening. Because when an elder, a deacon, when someone comes to your home and says, but you need to do better, our temptation is to say, who are you to tell me what to do? Or maybe it's our son or daughter. Maybe it's our grandchild. Maybe it's something that happens in church. And we say, wait a second. Something that was said from the pulpit. We say, wait a second. Where do you get off? I'm offended by this. In our culture today, that is the worst sin. And it's the sin that shuts down all sorts of discussion, that shuts down all sorts of debate, where the Word of God is no longer being used. Now you have to come apologize to me. Not you have to bend the knee to Jesus Christ. No, you have to come apologize to me. In the world in which we live, restraining the wicked becomes one of the ways in which the church is weakened. Because the church no longer says to its members, repent and believe. In meaningful and serious ways. Instead we let them drift off. And disappear in the sunset. But it's not only restraining the wicked. Or defending the truth. That is to be the work of the officers. It's also blessing the needy. Acts chapter 7 reminds us about how the deacons began. By literally waiting on tables. They were ministering the the resources of the church. Into the lives of widows and widowers. And the Apostle Paul reminds us that we are to be a blessing to the poor, to those in need, even as the Council of Jerusalem reminded the churches to be a blessing to the poor. That's why historically the Christian church has been behind some of the great social blessings of society. That's why they started orphanages and hospitals and long-term care homes and homes for those that are mentally challenged. The church has long sought to express the love of Christ in very tangible ways to those that are facing the challenges of this life, facing the burdens of this broken life. And that is no less true today, should be no less true today than it was 
in the days of the early church. Oh, I know that the government has taken over many of these ministries through their social services. But those social services aren't particularly useful or good. And they're not a blessing the way the church needs to be. They certainly don't draw people to salvation in Jesus Christ. The purpose of all this blessing and need was to lift up. To lift up our parents and grandparents in their age, in their difficulties related to age, to say, we're, going to take, we're not going to leave you to the world to take care of. We're going to take care of you because we know the Lord's call and command to us. It's when people are struggling in their financial circumstances of life that we come in and don't just say to them, here's some money, how can we help you? But say, how can we now show you a way to live more consistently with Jesus Christ so that your decisions are, are blessed, that are beneficial to you and to others. The ministry of mercy is really the ministry of Jesus Christ's hands into the lives of those that are wounded and weary. Now in each of these tasks, by the way, we see a distinct office. For a preacher proclaims the truth of God's word, elders uphold the truth and restrain the wicked, and deacons apply that truth by blessing the needy. But each also represents an important element of the Lord's ministry within our lives. For the Lord provides under-shepherds not for their benefit. There are shepherds, under-shepherds that minister that way, and they receive their due reward from the King of Kings. But the Lord has given under-shepherds for the blessing of His people because the Lord has a priority for you and He has a way in which you are to be blessed. First of all, by hearing the clear teaching, the, the glorious good news of the Gospel, the rich blessing of His grace that you might come and hear again the riches of His grace for you in Jesus Christ. And, and then how the, the, the life of the believer is to be enjoyed or to be lived in the context of that Word, in the context of that grace. Indeed, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 14, when we hear the Gospel, then we are no longer as children tossed to and fro. We are secure, not only emotionally, but spiritually and eternally when we walk upon the the pathway of righteousness, the straight and the narrow way. And indeed, here is Christ's coming close to us with His voice, with His hands, with His feet, serving among us, walking among us, ministering His grace into us. That's how we are to see the officers of the church, that our King has come to bless us daily, that He has sent His emissaries, His chosen, appointed ambassadors, in order that His Word, His grace, His goodness might be experienced by us. And it's embracing this priority that challenges us when we are ministered to by the officers of the church. Because we live in a world where immediate blessings are demanded and where novelty is preferred. Always newer, always better. And Jesus says, no, no, no. The the Word I have for you is ancient. It is old and it is simple. It is ordinary and it is so glorious. We do belong to a church that is ancient with an unchanging Word and a claim that is unrelenting, a care that is unwavering. So that it may not seem like much at times, but 
It is what Christ provides that we need as we navigate the temptations and trials of this fallen world. We need to accept that Jesus Christ as King of Kings gets to decide who is going to rule over us. And we, get to, we have to accept why they're given to us. We have to accept that their ministry is exactly what we need. Even if we don't think we need it. That's the devil tempting us. We need to know that the word, that the care, that the ministry of grace, that the office bearers provide is what we need. But who are the men that should do this? How do we know what kind of leaders we should expect? Godly leaders are important because they're expressions of Christ's care in our lives. How do we ensure that we keep godly leaders? Well, we shouldn't be careless. Carelessness leads to empty churches. You remember the story of Achan. You remember how Achan sinned and how that brought about the defeat of Israel at Ai. Choosing carelessly, leaving sin, you might say, within the camp, does not bless the church, but harms the church. The church has at times wanted to be careless, wanted to use the offices as ways to pat people on the back to say, you're good, we like you. Has used the offices of the church in political terms. These are the kinds of people we want to lead us because they have the, 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 the direction that we think is good. It's not yes men or yes people who support our position that should lead the church. It is, it is men who have one singular quality. And that is the one that is described for us in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1. Men who are above reproach. What does that mean? What does it mean to be above reproach? Well, the, the description descri- tells us what it means to be above reproach. It's above reproach at home. It's above reproach at work. It's above a reproach in society. It's above reproach in his own personal piety. It's above reproach in his sexuality. It's above reproach in his financial dealings. It's above reproach in all that he does. But what what does that mean, to be above reproach? Who decides what is above reproach? Well, what we discover when we work through all of those qualities that are given to us in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 is that the standard bearer, that is, if you want to know what those qualities really look like, All you have to do is think about Jesus. Jesus is the one who defines each of them most perfectly. The husband of but one wife. Jesus gave his life for his bride. His children are believers. He has poured out his spirit that they might walk with him. Not open to the the charge of debauchery or insubordination. He is submissive. He is pure. Indeed, as we work through all of those qualities, what we discover is that Christ shines brightest in them all. Which means that above reproach is this. Those men in whom across all areas of life, the light of Christ shines. They're not just believers. That's an obvious prerequisite. 
But they are men who have daily worked out their salvation in fear and trembling, who clearly testify to their commitment to Christ across the full breadth of life and with careful wisdom have managed that which God has given them well and to the glory of God. So that in no area of life are they independent of Christ. This is a distinctive way, by the way, of choosing leaders. It's a distinctive way, especially in a world full of charismatic leaders. We see in politics that leaders need to be able to play well on TV or on YouTube, quick with compelling arguments and witty rejoinders that can be made into a 10-second TikTok. The fact that people noticed our Prime Minister's haircut this past summer is evidence of this. People don't care about the quality of his character, but they'll comment about his haircut. We want people who sound good, who look good, who are inspiring. This is no less true for the church. When it rains in the world, it drips in the church. If that's what the world wants, that's what we want a little bit too. Strong, dynamic leaders that have style over substance. We are called to seek men who are not pushing themselves forward. We are to look for men who are busy submitting themselves to Christ. We are to look for men who do not, in this respect, seek the position, but seek only to serve the Savior. Such men are humble. Such men are godly. Such men are rooted in their word and committed to blessing. And you begin to see why the church is so blessed when it is organized in the way that Christ has ordained. When these men rule us, when they are the governing positions over us, and they bring to us the grace of God, they bring to us the word of Christ, they bring to us the power of the Holy Spirit, then we are blessed. We are blessed in ways that are beyond what our world can truly understand. This is Christ's church, you see, led by the men of His choosing, appointed to the task of ministering by the Lord and identified by His Spirit for us. This is what it means to live within the church of Jesus Christ. A church that is governed by her King and by His Word and will. And this is what we must always demand of our church. Every time we come around again to voting at our spring congregational meeting, we must ask ourselves, what is Christ's will for our congregation? And demand it of the men who are appointed to that task. Let us see Christ in you, we must say, so that we might be blessed under the reign and rule of our King, to whom we come in prayer. Let us pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have, in Your wisdom, chosen to use such ordinary means. You take from amongst the sheep one, and You give to that one the task of speaking, to another the task of ruling, to the other a task of mercy. 
That's so counterintuitive, Lord. It's not what we would expect. It's not what the world likes. It's not what our human nature wants. But it's what you do. And it's challenging to us, Lord. It's challenging at every point. It's challenging to our old nature that doesn't want to submit to your rule. It's challenging, Lord, to our expectation of what we want the church to do. It's challenging, Lord, to our sense of who ought to lead. Your word calls us to put aside all of that old nature, all of that selfishness, thoughtlessness, carelessness, and to remain focused only on your word and will. Help us to do that in this place as well. For we ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.